You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Fung Tran. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week, we speak with Noura Mansour, who is a Palestinian educator, political analyst, writer, activist, who currently works as the community organising and advocacy lead at Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. In this discussion, Noura speaks to us about Palestinian resistance and smud in its many forms, the responsibility of the media when reporting on the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and actions that the wider community can take to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Noura, thank you for joining us on Women on the Line. Could you please begin by introducing yourself and talking about the work that you do? Thanks for having me, Fung. Um, my name is Noura Mansour and I live on Wurundjeri country and I currently work at the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network as the community organising and advocacy lead. APEN functions as the umbrella organization for advocacy groups and individuals who are keen um, on advocating and um, basically supporting the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian people. Um, so we, we, we uh, run our advocacy through three different streams. First one is political and media lobbying. And then the second one, uh, community organizing and community development, capacity building, and as I mentioned, um, lots of work with media as well. So that's it in a nutshell, what we do at APAM um, as a, an advocacy organization that works to um, basically bring more awareness, but also bring some sort of a change um, in the political landscape here in Australia when it comes to the um, Palestine, um, you know, slash Israel issue. Thanks so much for that, Noura, and we'll talk more about that later in the discussion. Last month, Israel launched several attacks on Janine refugee camp. Can you talk us through the history of Janine and how it has become a symbol of Palestinian resistance? Yes, uh, uh, Janine is um, basically what happened in Janine is a microcosm or a, um, a miniature experience or uh, an example of what has hap- has been happening in Palestine uh, over 70 decades. Basically, Janine is not an isolated case. Next to Janine, there's Nablus, and there's also other cities and towns in Palestine that uh, experience and that have uh, gone through the same fate as Janine. But to talk about Janine specifically, um, and specifically the refugee camp in Janine, refugees, um, you know, basically encapsulate the entire Palestinian experience. So when we talk about Palestine, it's, you know, we, we talk about the, the largest refugee uh, group in the world, the, the Palestinian people, and the longest as well, in terms of the 
you know, this has been the longest that refugees has been out of their house um, and their homes and their lands, and they haven't been allowed to return back. So that's why the significance of refugee camps and, and having refugee camps in, in Palestine. You know, talk about like just the question, why do we even have refugee camps in Palestine? Right. We talk about people in Janine who are not allowed to return to their um, original towns and homes. Um, and these people, you know, in, in, in Janine refugee camps come from uh, towns in 1948. So they're originally from Nazareth or Haifa. And yet Haifa exists. Right. It's not a demolished village or uh, like other villages that have been destroyed in 1948. But people from Haifa are not allowed to return to Haifa. Um, and they live just, you know, um, 20 minutes drive away from Haifa. Um, same, people in uh, refugee camps in Gaza are not allowed to return back to their original towns and, and cities in Yaffa, for instance. And this is, I think, the, the core question that we need to be tackling, is that there are over 6 million Palestinian refugees around the world, many internally displaced Palestinians within Palestine, that are not allowed uh, to exercise their internationally recognized right including by the United Nations, and return back to their homes. So this is the issue here at hand. And yet, meanwhile, you have illegal Israeli settlements that continue to expand on, on, the, on the lands of the Palestinian people, people being kicked out of their own homes in order for these illegal settlements to, to grow. Yes, uh, recently the um, Israeli government has approved over 10,000 units uh, for Israeli settlers. And this shows you that it's not an issue of, once again, going back to the refugee question, that it's not an issue of lack of space or lack of lands or lack of, um, you know, sometimes they say, oh, it's logistically impossible. Like we, there's no space for us to return to allow all these refugees back. But that's not true. We, we can see that that's not true because they keep um, expanding and building new settlements um, as well in the West Bank. But we also it's not true. We, we know it's not true because there's um, Palestinian scholars like Salman Abu Sitta, who's conducted a research about how, the feasibility of the return. And in that research, he basically details all the cities and the towns that are currently um, uh, uninhabited and that Israel hasn't allowed their, uh, the original inhabitants basically to return that are just sitting there in the ruins and they're not allowing people as well to kind of rebuild those cities. So it's feasible, it's possible, and we can do it. And we can see that Israel continues to build new settlements, but it's only for a certain group of people. That is if you're an Israeli Jewish person. Yeah, so it is then really important to be to be able to see through the official messages that are coming from Israel and their media when it comes to the feasibility, the possibility of, of these things happening. Because like you said, it shows that it's actually a very calculated calculated project on their behalf. They know exactly what they're doing. They're very intentional with that. So once you recognise that, it's much easier to see through the messages. That's true. And, and that's very important, I think, Fong, for us to kind of um, highlight that the fact that Zionism is not confused about what it wants or what it is, right? It's a very calculated, intentional project that aims basically to empty uh, the land of Palestine from the, its indigenous population, meaning the Palestinian people. And so in that sense, it's a, it's a textbook a settler colonial project, European, obviously inspired by European settler colonialism. 
Yes, and we see a lot of that happening here, of course, in so-called Australia, as it has been for many years now, an ongoing, very intentional uh, colonial project. And just on that point, I think it's important to also uh, highlight or think about the ways in which settler colonialism continues to manifest here on, you know, on stolen land, on Wurundjeri country, you know, 200 plus years later. So we can see that there's, you know, they're almost identical settler colonial projects in the sense that what they aim to achieve, but also the, the journey is, you know, how the journey is similar, but also how is it different? And lots of uh, lessons to learn as well for the Palestinian people. I guess related to this discussion that we've been having about seeing through what the Israeli government is trying to do, related to that, I guess, is looking at language and the power that it has. So last month, Al Jazeera published an article about the way that Western media was reporting on the attack uh, on Janine refugee camp and, and how a lot of publications were, were using language deemed, quote unquote, neutral, such as Operation AIM, allegedly and in doing so, removing any acknowledgement of the long history of violence and genocide uh, committed by, by the Israeli government. On the other side, though, more recently, the just last week, the Labour Party has said that they will start referring to settlements uh, as illegal settlements on occupied Palestinian land. So I wanted, wondered if you could talk about how language can be both damaging but also be used as a tool for, for radical change. I think that's an important question, specifically when you're, you know, in an asymmetric um, situation or context, uh, and such as the one that we have in the Palestine context, where you have um, an extremely powerful player on one hand that is a state actor and non-state actors, right? Uh, I think it's important language becomes um, a game changer. So it's, and sometimes it becomes, you know, when we talk about resistance as well, like this is one form of resistance, and one form of um, countering the 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 aggressive narrative that, or also the vil the vilification and discourse that happens when we talk about Palestinian, you know, people basically just resisting or demanding the right to live peacefully on their land. So I think this becomes a very crucial point, specifically when you're um, the colonized part or when you are the the less powerful, quote unquote, in in the, in the material sense part. So. Yes, lang language is extremely important. It's and and it's sad to see that you know mainstream media with, I, I mean, to me, it's a misinformation and disinformation as well. When you try and downplay the severity of a certain event or incident, and you say oh, operation or conflict, and and that's just not factual because there is no conflict. There is one side that is exercising um, extreme power to further their agenda, and the other side has no tools to basically to engage in conflict, like one side exists and the other doesn't <laughs> in that sense. So I think it's important to, to call out these um, misinformation attempts that the mainstream media constantly keeps pushing. But then, you know, to go back to that point where you mentioned as well, in terms of why language is important. And recently, a couple of days ago, the Australian government um, has made the decision to restart using the term occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, which is clearly is a step in the right direction, but that is, you know, we know Australia can do much more, should and can do better. 
I think um, unless this action is translated into, or this step, you know, it's a symbolic step and it's, it's, it's a nice symbolic step, right? But also it's not sufficient unless we translate it into meaningful action that would bring to an end the Israeli occupation or Israeli aggression uh, on the ground in Palestine, then that becomes something that is just mere symbolism uh, and won't have an impact or real impact. I think what we do want to see is for the Australian government to have better voting patterns in the United Nations, to stop shielding Israel from accountability uh, when it comes to the ICC. We can't say, oh, it's occupied and it's illegal, uh, you know, under um, United Nations or under, you know, international law, but at the same time continue to trade with Israeli uh, illegal settlements you know, as usual. Uh, so I think we we need to kind of be, it's it's great that this, you know, step has, has been announced. It does bring Australia back into consensus with the rest of the international community when it comes to the, the whole language and terminology that is used, but also it's not sufficient um, if we stop here. Yes, because there is a lot of hypocrisy in that, in saying one thing and doing the complete opposite, and also the hypocrisy of calling it occupied Palestinian land whilst also still furthering the colonial project here on stolen land. So like you said, Noura, there needs to be more done on top of just simply using language that sounds good, but if there's no action to to back that up, then it's just hollow words. Yes, agree. I was wondering in your role at APAN, and you said a lot of the work that APAN does, work that you do, is around media communication. Uh, I imagine that language is a very big part of that and feeling empowered to communicate the messages about Palestine and advocating for Palestine in the way that you want it to be communicated, that there is no room for mis- or disinformation. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that in the context of your work at APAN. So we try to basically bring to the Australian pub- public um, the um, Palestinian truth. Right. We talk about the Palestinian truth, the, the, the Palestinian narrative, uh, Palestinian demands, what the Palestinian people want uh, and what the Palestinian people are fighting for. And also to bring more updates from Palestinians on the ground as well in terms of what what is happening on a day to day basis and how the Israeli occupation affects Palestinians lives um, on a daily matter. And what, for instance, we talk about smooth, which in Arabic means steadfastness and resilience. So what does that look like on a daily basis? Resistance, what does it look like like on a daily basis? There's so many different modes and forms of resistance that are being played out. You know, as we speak right now, I'm talking to you, Palestinians back home are resisting. And, um, you know, they exercise sumud. So uh, what does that look like? And it not, not only it happens in Palestine where um, people come, you know, people basically put their bodies on the line and there are they're holding the line for basically any fight that is anti-racist and anti-colonial. And we see it happening in, in a high intensity in Palestine. Like this is what it looks like, right? The clashes between anti-colonial and colonial powers, um, between, you know, racism, uh, white supremacy um, and indigeneity. So we see that being played out on a high um, intensity level in Palestine. So Yes, so we try to bring forward these examples. We try um, to talk about the beauty as well um, and, and the inspiration and the power and the agency that the Palestinian people have 
um, in their life, which is quite inspiring because if um, anyone has visited or if you grew up in a context where every little aspect of your life is being controlled by an external power, then you would realize how difficult it is and how much strength it requires for people to keep up the fight and keep up the hope and also insist on living um, a natural, normal human life. You know what I mean? Like that we insist on having parties. We insist on um, going to university. We insist on uh, getting education. Uh, we insist on our culture. We, we, we continue to fight and resist through, you know, culture, education, archaeology, um, and all these different aspects of life. So every, every, sadly, it becomes everything you do becomes an act of activism and resistance, whereas, you know, in another, in another context, it's just a, a normal daily, day-to-day -day life. It sounds so exhausting, like you were saying. It is. It is quite exhausting. But also, you know, in that context, you learn to find strength in places you would not expect. Like, you know, we talk about the plights of the Palestinian prisoners, right? A year ago, we had six prisoners who, despite living in horrible conditions, like there's um, the most controlled and marginalized and targeted um, group of the Palestinian people are the Palestinian prisoners. Um, they're highly vulnerable to Israeli aggression because, you know, the nature of their lives as prisoners um and they live in administrative detention where they there's no trial no they're not allowed to see their lawyers um uh, sort of you know which is illegal under interna international law as well um but we had six prisoners who managed to dig a tunnel from a high security prison and escape and you know break free for a couple of weeks and of course everyone you know we knew they were gonna be caught. They knew they were going to be caught. No one was expecting that this is going to be the break of a lifetime. But um, these kind of examples, like you draw inspiration from these kind of examples, that despite we know that life is grim and we know how aggressive and how difficult and how hard it is, but we ins we insist on you know trying. We will keep trying. So I, I think that's beautiful and that's you know poetic and inspiring. Yeah, that's a really beautiful beautiful sentiment. Then I think such a such an important way to view resistance from from that lens uh i think people perhaps a lot of times due to the privilege that they have in their lives view resistance in a very narrow narrow way have a very narrow definition of resistance um often it's seen as something that's violent and i think that's something that's often communicated and perpetuated by mainstream media when in fact like you said nora resistance can take many forms it can be as simple as just existing, um, having parties, making making art, all of these things that for a lot of people who are not subjected to that, to that violence and that control is simply just a way to live your life. And, and look, one mode of resistance is armed resistance, obviously, because, you know, reality under occupation is extremely harsh. And sometimes, you know, people have no options. Like even having a party becomes something that you cannot do. Going to uni is something that you, you, you're not allowed. So it's important to keep in mind that these kind of, um, you know, tools and, and our armed resistance or resistance in general, in a sense, are a byproduct of the occupation. So as long as, you know, people, there's um, oppression, there will always be resistance. Like, and, and, and the need for people to be free and to be, 
um, you know, to have self-determination is, is an innate basic human need. You can see it even, you know, amongst tod toddlers, right? <laughs> I have two sons and it's just amazing how they want to do what they want to do, you know, like they want to assert their, their uh, personality and they want to, um, the point is that self-determination and freedom is a basic human need. And when people are denied those needs, they will find a way to fight back and try and achieve those basic needs because it's like food. You, you need it to live. Freedom is the same. Comes back to what you were saying earlier, Nora, about how that then is portrayed in the media. Often, you know, resistance and armed resistance is portrayed as, as being on the same level as being the colonizer or being the one with all the power and presenting that then as a conflict between two equal parties, when in fact that is that is not the case. Yes, that's definitely not the case and not even according to international law. Like the international law clearly uh, prohibits and then, you know, resistance is a, is a right that is enshrined um, by the international law, specifically for people under car regimes. So car regimes are colonial, apartheid and racist regimes. So people who live under those regimes, according to the um, international law, have the right to resist and seek safe, you know, uh, and peaceful life. So, and of course, that part is omitted when we talk about Palestine, but it's very celebrated, pretty much celebrated when, and glorified when we talk about the Ukraine. So I think it's great that people are supporting the Ukrainian resistance. And, I, and I'm, I'm, you know, I think that's fantastic. And I would like to see the same standards applied in the Palestinian context. Yes, and that, I guess, brings in another point of who is allowed to show resistance, who is allowed to, to behave in that way and who isn't because it's very clear that um, some communities, like you said, are celebrated and others are vilified for doing the exact same thing, which then leads me to, to talk about the responsibility of the media. I think you were saying at APAN, uh, the, the Palestinian voice is empowered and the stories of Palestinian people and of resistance are communicated and Palestinian truth is at the core of, of what you do. So could you tell us from your perspective, what is the responsibility of the media? Let's start with here in so-called Australia. What's the bare minimum that they can do in order to ensure that what they're communicating is the truth? Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about journalism and what's the, the you know, um, professional standards and what is the responsibility of, um, like, uh, journalistic coverage, we talk about truth. Right. We, we talk about truth telling, specifically here in the context of Australia. Right. We talk about truth telling a lot. And I think we need to extend that to other contexts as well, specifically with contexts who are similar to the context to our local one. So when we're talking about, you know, media coverage, of course, we, we, would, we want it to be factual. We, we, that's what we fight for. We were like, no, this is, you know, what you're providing is only 10% of the story. And actually sometimes that is not even representative. Like, you know, very often you would see a uh, coverage that says, oh, the Jewish Australian community says X, Y, Z or supports this, you know, for instance, a certain project where, whereas in fact, this is also wrong because the Jewish, the Australian Jewish community is very diverse. And there's different views as well when it comes to the uh, Palestinian cause as well. So I think it's important that, you know, journalism is held to high standards of professionality. professionality. And it's important that it's about truth telling, it's factual. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, we say balanced a lot, but I think it's important that it's value driven as well. Like in the sense that 
like what kind of an impact this kind this kind of coverage um, has on the wider community? What is the message that we're amplifying? I think it's an important question. We need to we need to make sure that when we, when we platform people, we amplify their message. So it's important to know that. You know, we need to we need to make sure that we are behind. We're, we're supportive of, of whatever message that we're amplifying, but also we need to think of the implications that it has uh, on on the wider public. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We've been speaking to Noura Mansour from the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network about Palestinian resistance and the media's responsibility to truth-telling when reporting on Israel's occupation of Palestine. In this final segment, Noura speaks about actions that the wider community can take to show support for the Palestinian community. Speaking about the wider community and the public, what are some things that the non-Palestinian community can do to show their support and solidarity for the Palestinian cause? There's heaps of things that we can do to show solidarity and support with the Palestinian cause, um, starting with um, maybe finding and connecting with Palestinian groups. For instance, um, you know, here um, in Victoria and Wurundjeri country, uh, we've got local. So there's locals. There's also um, national, I guess, so to speak, uh, networks. So the national network would be APAN, for instance. Um, so connect with APAN, uh, become an APAN member, check our website, uh, join our events. But also there's local groups such as the Free Palestine Melbourne in Victoria uh, in one Wurundjeri country. There are others as well in South Australia and across the continent. So make sure that you find these groups, connect, join the events. You know, you can support by either becoming a member or maybe donation or different ways. There's always some campaign happening. So there's that's one way of doing that, connecting with groups and individuals who are advocating. But a different way to do it is actually to raise awareness, um, you know, to talk to your friends about the Palestinian cause, talk to your uh, neighbors, your you know colleagues. And I know sometimes it's a tough conversation to have because once again, because of the entire misinformation around it, right? When people go, oh, it's, but it's very complex, but it's very complex. How do we talk about Palestine? And uh, it's not, it's not complex really. It's straightforward. It's just, in, you know, there's one side who is a colonial power and there's indigenous colonized people. And, and that's it. That's pretty much sums it up. It's not necessarily, it's, it's not primarily about religion. It's not primarily about nationality. And, but there's these aspects in it as well. There's, so there's some aspects of nationality and religion that kind of are interwoven into it, but primarily it's a settler colonial project. That's what it is. So talk to your friends about it, connect with groups and um, just help us spread the word that, yeah, this is what's happening in Palestine. That was Noor Mansour, community organising and advocacy lead at APAN, speaking to us about Palestinian resistance. That's all for Women on the Line today. We would love to hear any comments or thoughts you have about the program, so please send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. 
It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Fung Tran. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.